So before we start the show, we just wanted to recognize the uh, passing of one of the giants in our field, Dr. Jim Hybee. Many of you knew him much better than we did here at Ballast Sounds, but he meant a lot to us too as one of our first guests and a big supporter of our show from the very beginning. Even during our brief time with him, uh, interviewing him for his episode, you could tell his passion for our field, but also for teaching and for interacting with young people. Uh, I think he showed us that no matter how successful you are, what really matters most is uh, being a kind person and someone who cares and teaches the next generation. So we want to thank him and uh, our hearts and thoughts go out to his family. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPIGAN. I'm Jason Silverman, and today I am joined by my brother from another mother, oh, Dr. Peter Liu. Thank you, thank you. How are you, Jason? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. This is uh, I just came back actually from a week off. Last yeah. week, it was one of the first times in a long time that we we physically left the city of Edmonton. Oof. We we packed up and um, we we were lucky enough to to be able to get an Airbnb in the mountains of uh, British Columbia, oh, which was a awesome. beautiful beautiful setting, and spend a few days out there. Um, so it's it's tough to be back at work, but it was nice to to get a break away uh, safely. Yep. Um, after uh, so long spent at home. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, so a couple weeks ago we, uh, had our first kind of family reunion since 2019, uh, in Northern Michigan, which, I mean, there's a beautiful, a lot of beautiful lakes and, uh, and coastline there. So yeah, we got a lake house. I got to meet my, uh, my nephew for the first time. He's already like eight months, but because of COVID we couldn't, I couldn't meet him. So yeah, it's just nice to like, have life almost like in some ways restart, you know, and catch up with all these sure. people that are, you know, uh, you know what I meant. Who are like important. Important. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Good way to put it. Do we have any announcements today? Like we said on the last episode, we would like to invite our audience to submit questions for our future guests, which we'll announce on our Twitter account. Uh, or for past guests, so if you have were listening to something and you're like, I really wanted to ask this specific question, how come they're not asking this? Just uh, add us on Twitter, hashtag Ask Bowel Sounds, and uh, we may just take a look at it and uh, ask the guest, and we'll uh, kind of, uh, I guess, read their answer or maybe have them join in briefly on a future episode. Sounds good. So, uh, so today we have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Brian Vardabedian. And uh, so he's someone I think is pretty well known in pediatric GI and definitely in the social media landscape. Um, he has for many years preached the importance of really taking care of and uh, like curating, being aware of your online presence, not just on social media, but on uh, review websites and uh, just on online in general. And uh, he's given some talks before that I think were really excellent at NASPIGAN about this concept of the public physician. And so we wanted to have him join and talk about this a little bit more. For sure. And for 
those of you that, that don't know uh, Dr. Vardabedian, uh, which is probably a smaller number, um, he is a pediatric gastroenterologist, but he's probably best known for his work on his blog, 33 Charts, where he writes about the intersection of medicine, technology, and culture. Um, he can often be found sharing thoughtful insights on Twitter. And he really thinks about how technology and the emerging digital space is changing how we uh, view, how we care for, and how we engage with our patients and how they engage with us. Uh, Dr. V, as some people call him, is also a full-time faculty member at Baylor College of Medicine and co-founder of the Medical Futures Lab, a Rice University-based collaborative focused on reimagining the future of medicine. We're really happy that he was able to take the time to sit down with us and talk about this really important topic. Yeah, so really looking forward to this conversation. On to the show. So, Dr. Vardabedian, thank you so much. Or should I call you Dr. V? Dr. V or Brian, we're among friends here, so whatever you guys think. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on Bowel Sounds today. Really appreciate you being here. Right. Great to be here. Love the name of the podcast, Bowel Sounds. Thank you. Thank you. All credit to Peter. (laughs) (laughs) It was originally going to be Tummy Time, which um, I think Bowel Sounds is way better. In med school, our newsletter was Borborygmi, which is pretty good, oh, too. So. Nice. Good. Difficult okay. to spell, but yeah. Cool. I see the kinship there. <laughs> um, so we're going to start with, you know, well, some guests find this the most challenging question, but for our listeners that don't know you, and there aren't going to be many of them, but um, for those few out there, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? I guess, uh, boy, you guys come out swinging, don't you? <laughs> Um, I guess I'm, I'm the guy that kind of sees the bigger picture, um, certainly in the field of pediatric gastroenterology among my peers, I probably have my eyes on more things outside our field than uh, a lot of people. So um, I guess that makes me a really bad academic or uh, either a really good academic, uh, depending on how you look at it in the old school way, I guess. That's good. That's a good, that's a good answer. I feel like anyone who has visited your website and your blog, 33charts.com, will completely agree with that. So, and obviously you read a wide variety of sources for your work on 33 charts, and we'll come back to that. But over the past year, we've been asking everyone about the book, podcast, TV shows, or movies they've been enjoying at home during this pandemic time. Anything you'd recommend? Yeah, you know, there's there's a book that I'm reading now for the second time by a blogger called Austin Kleon. Um, It's a book called Keep Going. Uh, Austin Kleon is uh, an artist based out of Austin, Texas, who is uh, a writer and an artist. And uh, his book is all about how to remain creative in building things and making things. And I wrote a post on this a couple of years ago. Uh, When I look at the, the burnout epidemic that I see among physicians, I think one of the one of the great solutions for this is having something that you can make or create or build, a podcast like this, for example, something you can focus on and, and create. Um, so this book you know, shows you it's, it's as much philosophy and worldview as much as anything else. And so I find it really inspiring and uh, a book I love to come back to for inspiration. Nice. That's great. Austin Kleon's books, I mean, I, I read Steel Like an Artist. Yes, and uh, and it's uh, he, he, you know he he is an artist, and so mm-hmm. it's it's great. It's like a, a a picture book for adults with really deep thinking in it. Right, I think some of these books really 
have real implications for people in research and academic medicine in terms of thinking broadly and making connections between things beyond our narrow scope of view. So I like that kind of stuff. Very cool. I alternate between nonfiction and fiction reading quite often. And uh, pretty much always, if Stephen King comes out with a new book, it's a nice automatic go-to for something really light, freeing, total escapism. And so he just uh, wrote a book called Later. Um, It's just a really nice, short, classic Stephen King supernatural story. Um, But man, that guy can write, you know, you you start page one, and it just kind of carries your momentum, just carries you through to the end really easily. You wrote a great book on writing, too, about, uh, Mm. I caught that five, ten years ago, a great book on writing and how he sees the craft of writing, which is great if you've ever tried to write anything. It's a great insight. I think I, that's true. And I mean, this is this is great and on brand for, for this episode. But uh, that book is fantastic because I think a lot of people have visions of Stephen King. Oh, wow, the, you know, this amazingly prolific writer. He must just have ideas pouring out of his head all the time. And, um, and what people maybe don't realize until you read a book like that is this is his job. And he right. he has a regular habit of you sit down and you do the work and you write and you keep writing. Um, and uh, I think that that work ethic, that uh, focus uh, really, really translates. Absolutely. Uh, you wrote The Public Physician, um, A Guide to Life in a Connected World. And it was initially a free ebook, And now you've, you've put it up on your website and we'll, we'll share a link uh, to that in our show notes. But you were clearly hoping to get this material into the hands of the widest number of physicians uh, as possible and have them read it. Um, for listeners who haven't dipped into the work, who, isn't, who aren't familiar with it, what do you mean by a public physician? And why is that somebody our listeners, GI physicians for the most part, would want to be? Yeah, it's an interesting concept because it's not something we really think about so much. We kind of just do it. But For the better part of history, physicians did everything in real life. And there's a large percentage of pediatric gastroenterologists or physicians who still see their world as sort of their immediate space, people connected maybe at most by email, but most of the people in their in real life sphere. Um, But as the world has evolved into this global network of public spaces and public forums like Twitter, there's now a new presence that we have beyond the in real life space. And uh, this has even evolved as kind of a new responsibility for physicians to take, to be accountable for what you're doing there, how you're presenting yourself, how you behave, how you're professional. And so the whole concept of being outside of the in real life space is being a public physician. And like I said, that comes with new responsibilities and rules and regulations and, um, not regulations, but, you know, rules and, and, and guidelines that um, we've only been thinking about for about a decade. And, um, and so that's what, I, that's what I mean when I refer to as a, a public physician is everything in the virtual space. And I think, you know, a lot of our listeners may be reluctant to embrace that, um, you know, or they may reject it altogether. I think one of the things that you talk about on the site is that, you know, the online, that someone's online presence is inevitable, that that conversation is happening, whether or not you're a part of it. So what do you mean by that? And what does it mean for physicians today? So if you Google yourself and anyone on this podcast or listening to it can do what's called a vanity search, which is when you put your name in, usually with MD after it and see what comes up. 
And what you'll notice is that independent of whether you've been hiding under your desk for the last 15 years or very active on Twitter and, and, and the blogosphere, um, there is a first page of Google about you. And this is a very important point. And that the point is that either you can create the stuff that people find on that first page of Google, or you can simply leave it to other people to create on your behalf. And what's so interesting, Peter, is that when I when I bring this up in, in, in front of a ballroom of 500 docs and half of them are looking at their phones, when they hear that, they all look up because everyone is afraid of what someone's saying about them. So right. the idea that we, we are out there, whether we're participating or not, is kind of what I meant by that inevitability. Yeah, for sure. And that brings up a, a good point because you, you said about either you are in charge of that message, you're in charge of what is written about you or what right. that outward public facing um, information consists of, or you're going to be a bystander and somebody else is creating that. And so you've, you've, I've, I've heard you present at NASP again about this and you've talked about physicians defining and protecting their brand, their mm-hmm. message. And so how do physicians do that? Like, what are the sort of concrete decisions and steps that physicians need to make in order to go out and try and take control of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And this issue of brand is is so funny because when we started talking about this a few years back, uh, everybody was up in arms because, you know, we were saying, well, you, you're a doctor, you can't have a brand. We think about brands, we think about like toilet paper and potato right. chips. And so... Um, you know, you can look at the business literature and, 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 and understand multiple definitions of brands, but it's what people think about you, believe about you when they think about you. It's a tattoo on the brain, so to speak. And every physician has a brand, be it that infectious disease doctor who shows up in her impeccable dress with her impeccable handwriting back when we had paper charts, or that, uh, that surgeon who uh, answers that page before the beeper goes off and, you know, everyone's got something that defines who they are. And uh, the same goes for all of us, whether we try to build a brand or not build a brand, we have one. And so um, I raise that in some of the public physician workshops to illustrate the idea that we have to have some sense of who we are or how we want to present ourselves as public physicians or in that public space. Um, Even on Twitter, when you look at what docs do, everyone is sort of, everyone's got their own idea of what they're doing with it and the voice that they're using the things they're trying to share and the image that they're trying to present. And so that's kind of what I refer to as a brand. And we have to be kind of intentional about it. You know, I, I talk about this idea of, of creating a digital map, which is setting up where you want to put yourself in the online space. Where do you want to create content? Where do you want to have conversations? And that map is kind of, how you can define yourself in the public space. So maybe I can just tack on to that if you don't mind. Like there are, I think some of the pushback that people have besides that maybe the sort of visceral reaction to that brand word, you know, that, that maybe connotes advertising or, mm-hmm. um, or, or manipulation of a message or, or whatever the case may be. Um, you mentioned about, you know, where you want to be present you know, whether you want to create a blog, a podcast, you know, whatever the case may be. And I think some of the resistance from a lot of people who hear that message is, but I don't want to do any of that. I just want to do my research. I just want to look after my patients. So are there still 
avenues? Are there still opportunities for people to to create uh, an impression about who they are that doesn't revolve around maybe some of those uh, creative enterprises? The first thing I would say about that, because I get that a lot from people who say, I don't have the time, or I don't do that, or I'm not like that, or I'm whatever term they use to describe having a public presence. Um, and I, I, I kind of say it's, it's critical to being relevant, even as an academician, having some public presence to either gather information or share, disseminate what you're doing, because this is where, uh, where patients, uh, future employers are starting when they look for you. And it's just all there is to it. You don't have to like it, but it is what it is. So to answer your question specifically about if you don't want to form like a big digital map and, and get engaged in conversation on Twitter and so on and so forth and be so organized uh, that way, I, I kind of always tell people to, at a very minimum, capture their uh, public, what I call public-facing profiles. Um, these are the places and spaces on the web that allow you to place your biography and things about you. And the classic example is your institutional uh, about page. Um, a lot of academicians don't even optimize that, honestly. Um, the, 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 great, the greatest example for everyone, of course, is LinkedIn, where you have the opportunity to sort of really capture uh, in a uh, several hundred word bio what you're about. Uh, as well as all the stuff that you would traditionally put on a resume. So if you want to, you know, have a digital footprint without all the commitment of thinking so intentionally, like I talk about in the public position, you can just optimize your, uh, your uh, public profiles being your institution and, uh, and your LinkedIn pages. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that when they search for themselves, a lot of those top results are things that they can edit, that they can influence. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, I, just to kind of give another plug to your, the public physician, like you spell out exactly how to do that, all the different profiles that people can, can, uh, can look at. And, you know, I, I think the other thing, you know, for people who are reluctant to do that, I mean, if anything, this is just as important as your CV, except people actually see it, you know, right. and your patients right. see right. it. Right. Everyone will, I mean, I think, I don't know what the percentages are, but I feel like most people are searching who they're looking up their doctors and uh, especially new patients. So the importance of this is only going to grow over time. And, and Pete, maybe you've heard this at NASP again. The last time I spoke at NASP, I think I showed uh, a vanity search of my name with the top 10 results. And I think six or seven of those top 10 were public profiles. Mm -hmm. It was Baylor, Texas Children's, uh, LinkedIn, and I think doximity. And so just owning those profiles, you're going to own at least the top of the fold of your first page. Right. So that's the place to start. For sure. And and like you were saying, uh, Brian, about opportunities and uh, what how employers are looking for people. Right. Um, I've certainly had people reach out to me to take on different roles because they saw something on my institutional about page right. that spoke to them or they realized, oh, that's somebody that is is doing something in a space that is relevant. And so opportunities open up, you know, even for collaboration, to continue doing the work that you already want to be doing, want to be spending most of your time doing, um, those opportunities may reveal themselves because you have uh, a more tailored online presence. Yeah, I, I like to make the statement that visibility creates opportunity. 
Um, I can't tell you uh, the number of times that I have posted something, written something on the blog or on the podcast, the exam room, and uh, people have reached out to me. And, you know, you have a conversation. When you create conversations, things start to happen. And so um, visibility creates opportunity. I kind of moving on to the next question. So, like, I just, just, just to summarize a little bit. So you've made the point. Everyone has an online profile out there. You know, there are simple steps you can take, even if you don't want to invest tons of time to really optimize that, that public physician persona. Yep. But, you know, people still have fears about specific things related to social media or online reviews and things like that. So we want to go through a few challenges people might face, or at least that, you know, they're worried about facing and get your input on how people should deal with things like that. So sure. um, one is, so online reviews. I think obviously everyone's scared of having a negative review out there that they can't address or edit or how, how do you, how would you deal with a physician who goes online, searches themselves and finds out that they've had neg- that they have negative reviews on there. Yeah. So one of the core realities of being public or being out there or being outside of your office is the fact that uh, you can't stop the conversation. And that is such a core principle because a lot of physicians, when they see a negative review, they want to stop that conversation happening around the 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 rude front end staff you know when when you have 10 reviews saying your front end staff are rude you're probably have some work to do so there's some there's some grain of truth to this but i would advise anyone who's part of uh, a large practice or an institutional group uh, when it comes to negative reviews especially things that you think get into the legal end you really should get the input of your uh, public affairs professionals Um, because just as a basic rule even responding to a negative review uh, certainly in the United States can have implications regarding health privacy law. So you have to be very careful in terms of how you approach these. Uh, categorically, I would advise docs to really turn the whole thing completely upside down and really work to kind of create positive reviews. Um, Lee Acey, who ran the Mayo Clinic Center for Social Media, used to say the solution to pollution is dilution. Mm-hmm. And so rather than worrying about that one negative, why don't you try to at your checkout, uh, at your checkout staff, have them ask people if they're happy to leave a review on their place of site. And over the course of a year, you'll accumulate thirty great reviews, and people won't, yeah, will we'll ignore the negative one. So, right, that's yeah. how I see it. Yeah. Just, so, just leave it be and and try to create the more positive view. Yeah, dilute things. Uh, I've had I've had some luck with uh, peers who have uh, approached patients to try to reconcile some grievances and have them taken down and that, 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 that can work. But be very careful about countering these things in the public space because it gets into some tricky legal area. For sure. No, that makes sense. Um, one of the things that people that are new to Twitter or, uh, or Facebook or any social media platform, um, pretty soon, even if they're just kind of lurking, it'll become very apparent. They'll see the, the, the troll They'll mm-hmm. see the activity of that that um, insurmountably negative person who taunts, who throws mud and worse stuff, um, and and so that's something that people are people fear. You know what happens if I go out there as a professional and I post something relevant to my, you know, I post something about. Um, 
use of proton pump inhibitors as a pediatric gastroenterologist, and suddenly there the trolls come a- come after me. Um, how what would you be your advice, or how do you manage that? I'll pull the camera back just for a minute and say that categorically, there's a tremendous amount of fear about being a public physician or being in the public realm. Uh, a lot of it's irrational. Um, back in the earliest days of social media and blogging, uh, the biggest fear was that we were going to get like attacked by patients asking us questions and medical advice. And that was this irrational fear that somehow everyone wanted free advice. And, and that, as, as we know, it doesn't happen very often. Um, and so, Peter, to the point about the, the trolls, um, that happens and it's kind of dependent upon what your, your passion and subject matter is. If you're a vaccine advocate, for sure, it's, it's part of the price of the cost of doing business. Um, anyone doing vaccine advocacy in the pediatric world knows that the, the best rule we can follow with regard to trolls who are there and they're everywhere is uh, to not feed them. You know, these uh, folks are looking for attention and looking for... The, the fuel for them is that reaction and the fight and the, and the, and the division and the polarity. And so not feeding them is really all you can do. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other strategies, blocking people and that sort of thing, but it's like, it's like killing cockroaches, right? Then another one comes along. So right. for sure. Do you guys, I mean, do you guys have any experience on that or thoughts on that on trolls? So my, uh, my wife is a facial plastic surgeon and she's very active on Instagram. And uh, we did have a fairly recent, um, experience with that. So like she, so we just had a baby, um, in February and when she was pregnant, she got the COVID vaccine and posted about it like a really long, like really thought out. She spent all this time mm-hmm. researching it, you know, explanation of why she made that decision. And then it was actually picked up by like a local news outlet. And I mean, really once that original post went up, we went out to dinner like outside in a you know, distanced way. Um, but her phone just got blown up. I mean, I mean, the, the thing is, anti-vaxxers, unfortunately, are very organized. I feel like once someone saw that and sent it out to their group, I mean, it was just incessant comments and, like, vile things that I, it's, anyway, it was, obviously, you know, no matter how much you prepare for it or expect it, it's just, you know, it yeah. gets you to some degree. So, yeah, so that, so she had, you know, turned off the comments for that post and, uh, you know, anyways, so yeah, it gets it under your something. skin too. It's, yeah. it's very, very insidious. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to turn it off once you've read it, you can't unsee it. And, and it's, uh, and you don't want to shut off discourse and dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, if you look at Twitter, for example, there, there just isn't enough nuance to really debate these issues. And right. so from my perspective, I'll often state my point and move on. I don't engage in any kind of debates and these sorts of things because it's futile so yeah exactly so honestly the solution was just turn off the comments and then right. yeah yeah it's like you can yeah. you decide how much time you want to and energy you want to spend or waste exactly. in that kind of forum yeah. and especially the, you know the line in the sand really i i think needs to be about when it becomes not about your position or the facts that you share, but about you, the, mm-hmm. the individual, you a person. I think once it becomes personal, yeah, it's it's time it's time to give it up. <laughs> the ad hominem attack, as they say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just rolling back to to something you mentioned earlier about you know a fear that probably isn't as big a deal as as people are still worried about um, is, is about those 
boundary issues, those public-private boundary issues where mm -hmm. somebody reaches out to you on social media about a medical issue or asking for advice or, or one of your patients, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, one of your patients reaches out to you through a, you know, inappropriate means on social media to, to engage with you. Has that happened? And, you know, mm -hmm. how often does it happen? And how do you yeah. ma manage that? Yeah. Um, let me just say, start by saying sort of categorically that um, the separation of our personal and professional spaces is becoming increasingly impossible. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, patients see, you know, on Instagram, a, a part of our lives that make us more human and more relatable and more approachable. So, it's a real upside to it. The downside is, of course, we sometimes will occasionally get approached. Uh, what's so interesting is that in 2008, when I started Twitter, it happened all the time. And it's only because patients weren't educated about the appropriate avenues for seeking medical advice. Um, and so I would say currently it's extremely rare that someone reaches out and tries to get advice or, or my own patients reach out. So um, there's what we used to teach our medical students at Baylor. Um, we had a longitudinal four-year course called Digital Smarts. And uh, there are two kinds of situations that you'll face with being approached. One is the individual who's not your patient who wants advice, uh, which is really pretty, pretty uh, straightforward. And that's uh, we just get some boilerplate language that you know my my institution and my uh, malpractice carrier prohibits me from offering advice and just talk to your doctor. Pretty straightforward. But the more complicated one is your patient who reaches out. Um, very often, these patients don't know sort of the privacy elements of. They think if they app message you that it's a private message and it's not. Um, so there's, there's some steps that I recommend that 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 young docs take. And the first is uh, to number one, of course, take the conversation offline. Um, say I'll call you, I'll chat with you. Uh, the second thing is to address their issue. Remember that young, um, as a, as pediatric gastroenterologists, young mothers who are used to working on Facebook, uh, this is how they communicate a lot of the times, and this is their this is their mode, and we we have to respect that and understand that. Um, this is how they work. And so address their issue. Third, uh, I educate them and say, listen, going forward, um, if you have to reach out, uh, just do my chart message or call, call, uh, call our nurse and et cetera. And then finally, I, uh, with these, uh, rare encounters, I uh, document them as telephone encounters. Um, and then I uh, clearly document that it was the patient that reached out to me on the public forum, not the other way around. Uh, there's some healthcare attorneys that suggest that there's implied consent when they initiate the conversation. Um, and so uh, that's just the way we handle it. I feel like with the growth in uh, using like online patient portals, it's easier now to redirect right. than like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll call my nurse and, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. You know, so the less of a relevant issue now, I think it's people, people are more educated. Yeah. <laughs> it's also fascinating that it, I wasn't aware that it was a bigger problem before and it's become less and less of a problem as people start to become more familiar with various social media platforms. And, right. Um, and, you know, the last, I guess, uh, potential pitfall for social media use as a physician, um, a lot of times people will worry about getting in trouble, whether yeah. by their institution or by who knows, for something that they posted. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Is that like a legitimate concern? Um, you know, yeah. What do you think? Well, that's so funny. It's, the, again, going back to the, the how times have changed, the earlier... Uh, the early days of social media, when I would try to bring peers into it, you know, 
so I'm going to get sued, you know, if I share this New York <laughs> Times article on a link, you know, I'm going to get, and I'm, I would think, what, what are they thinking? Right. You know, it's like they had no concept that you're just sharing a, a story. You're not, you know, and so there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and, and whatnot early on. People are, people have, have more understanding now, but there's still this fear, certainly when it comes, you know, when you go beyond just curating on Twitter or sharing a, a New York Times essay, there's the idea of, creating a podcast like this or mm-hmm. writing a blog post or starting a Substack, And, um, I guess the, the way, the way I handle it with my institution is I've always let my division chief and my chairman know what I'm doing. I invite them to read it. Uh, office of public affairs knows about it. I invite them to read it. And I've, I always say, if there's ever anything that I post that you think is sort of off the rails or insensitive, just give me a call. And so I have that open conversation. So I think inside the institution, it's really important to do that outside. I, you know, being nice and being kind will will go, you, you know, take you very far in terms of like avoiding um, some of the things that you can get in trouble with when you, when, when you write things, that's kind of the way I see it. And I haven't gotten into much trouble. I think uh, the number of people who've had uh, lawsuits is so small and litigation, legal action, and th- this sort of thing is so small that it's, 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 it's probably way overstated, but yeah. important to think about. Yeah. And I think like you mentioned, a lot of institutions now have people dedicated to monitoring, so monitoring social media and providing guidance and letting you know if you're maybe a little bit out of bounds. So yeah, I think it's helpful to know your own resources. At Baylor college of medicine, when we, uh, I was the director of digital professionalism for three or four years back in few years back, um, it was interesting that there was, this was a position that came about because there was concern about what was going to happen when docs get on Twitter, you know, <laughs> the, the sky was going to fall. And so we had to have someone in the institution. And so it was really kind of a sign of the times that, uh, that I had that role. But um, we had students who, who um, were kind of starting their own blogs and, um, you know, they had things to say. And so we started a blog at Baylor and and tried to uh, recruit these students into blogging under the umbrella where they could have protection and guidance and whatnot. I, I do think it's very important when it comes to medical students and trainees that rather than telling people that they can't do this, can't do that, that we teach them the appropriate way to work in the world that we live in now and how to how to be responsible with your public presence and how to, you know, what are the, what are the boundaries and that sort of thing. So we should be teaching them how to do it rather than saying, uh, I, I don't do it or, or you're prohibited from doing it. Yeah, for sure. Give them the training wheels. Yes. But I, I think one of the key points in, in not getting in trouble or at least minimizing the risk of getting in trouble, it's it's sort of, you know, akin to the, the, the old days of making a phone call. You know, don't make a phone call when you're angry. You know, right. wait several yep, hours yep, yep. before making that phone call, you know, or, or write a letter and don't send it for 24 hours. It's those old school pieces of advice. Mm-hmm. Then, And I think in the modern era with social media, people feel like something is happening. I must post about it right at this moment. Yeah. And it's often the better, more considered more well thought out take on whatever the issue is that is probably the the better option in terms of uh, actually having an impact in, in your in for your audience but also the safer option you're less likely to fire from the hip and um, maybe get yourself in trouble um, and then I guess the other other thing is something that Twitter has actually just started doing which I think is fantastic if you uh, try and share a link, 
and it detects that you haven't actually clicked through to read the article yeah. that you're trying to share, it'll say, do you maybe want to read this first? Yeah. And I think that's fantastic because I think some people get themselves in trouble because they read the, the headline or the blurb about yeah. the story. They share it, but they didn't read that it was a very different issue if you actually spent the time to, to read the article. So I think right. those are two things. Basically, just don't rush to yeah. posting. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we, we move now at the, we move at the speed of now, right? And that's blogging and, and newsletters are a little easier, but in Twitter, everything's moving in real time. And so that restraint that you talked about and that, that pause is, 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 is harder to do on, on synchronous platforms like Twitter. Right. For sure. Um, so Maybe we'll switch gears again. And, and thanks for talking about the public physician. We really strongly recommend for anyone curious, click the link in our show notes. Um, you've spent obviously a lot more time and effort delving into all of the steps that we, that we just sort of um, highlighted. Um, and so there's a lot more material to, to go through online that's been you know relatively recently updated for your website. So um, we really encourage our listeners to, to visit. But I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about your online life. So, you, you know, you started 33 Charts, uh, I think, in 2009. So it's more than a decade spent thinking, writing, sharing your, your insights in, you know, medicine, technology, culture. Can you share a little bit about that origin story? Like, where, what was the gap you were trying to fill for yourself or for other people? Yeah, so I, I wrote a book in the mid two thousands on reflux and allergy in babies, and um, at the time um, there was no social media, and every author friend I know said you have to have a blog in order to s promote your book. So I said, okay, fine, I'll start a blog. I started a blog called Parenting Solved, and um, it, my intent was just to have it for six months, promote the book, retire, and and leave pediatric gastroenterology. Right, you know. Didn't quite work out that way, but uh, what I realized uh, when I started posting to this blog was um, that I had a platform, a real platform to the world, and I realized I was connecting with people all over the place, and I realized how powerful this was. And so while it started as something that was very sort of selfish and short-term and, and so forth, I realized that there was really something to this idea of democratized media, the idea that I could be my own publisher. So it was around that time, 2008, I got into Twitter. Um, there weren't that many doctors there. And as more doctors came on, everyone was asking questions. Uh, can I talk to a patient? What happens if a patient asks me a question on Twitter? And at the time, that was like a, that was a huge issue because no one knew what to do with it. And so um, I started 33 Charts, which was really um, started with the intent of serving as a center of community around some of these discussions and dialogues happening around this new channel that we were communicating on. And so... Um, it served that really well for a number of years. Um, I think social media now is really kind of a uh, utility. And um, I think a lot of people kind of understand we, what's happening with it. I mean, things are changing actually now. Uh, uh, that's a whole other discussion. But um, I pivoted uh, more recently to talking about um, how technology is changing medicine, how technology is changing us as physicians and uh, even patients. And so it's pivoted over the years and that's kind of been my journey with it. Great. That's great. It's great to see that, uh, that it's evolved with you and, and with the world that we, that we're in, in modern yeah. medicine. 
I've tried. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and for people who haven't checked it out before, I mean, a lot of it's very relevant to like what exactly is happening now. You know, like conferences moving online and what what that means for the future yeah. and things like that. And uh, the other part of that, really quick, is um, so obviously all this is so much work. What what like keeps you going after ten years of uh, writing all these uh, the blog articles and the public physician and what's the what's been your motivation? Yeah, it keeps me sane, really. Yeah. Um, back to Austin Cleon and the idea of having something that you do. And I think that a lot of my peers, they don't have anything they do. They just, they show up at work and they, they wonder why their lives, their lives aren't fulfilled. And they, 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 they show up to clinic, they have to see more patients and so on and so forth. And so I think it's important for me to have that. Secondly, it's, it's kind of how I process the changes that are happening around me. I, I think we are truly in the most disruptive period in medicine in the past couple hundred years. And no one is getting their nose out of the grindstone to see what's happening around us. The fact that physicians are really kind of being replaced by technology and advanced practitioners. And I mean, it's just, everyone's just like, is it five o'clock yet? You know? Right. So um, I think it's important to have uh, an avenue like this. Yeah. And I feel like there's no way you can separate that from the increasing burnout with among physicians. Um, yeah. It's got to no, be absolutely. a contribution and maybe a way that technology can help as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're going to fix uh, some of this has been technology that's created. I'm not sure we're going to fix it with more technology, right, right. but uh, yes, technology can, uh, can help us uh, if we're careful in the way we, way we apply it. Well, I know, I know one of the things that is kind of central, you know, this, this is necessarily an episode on burnout, but, but it is relevant, uh, really, really relevant in 2020, 2021. Um, but one of the sort of central elements of, of burnout is um, uh, a loss of a feeling of loss of control or absence of control. And I guess, creating the content that you have, it's, it's yours. It's right. no one else's. You are in charge of creating or not creating yep, yep, or yep. making the newsletter longer or shorter, or it's totally yours. And so it is something that you can do from start to finish that you own. And certainly that can uh, be a real a strong motivator. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the things that's funny on Twitter, if you look at a lot of the docs who've come onto Twitter the past three or four years, a lot of them use Twitter as their place to sort of make stuff. And they'd use Twitter threads, which are really hard to find six months later. And I think that, I think it's unfortunate that we don't have more docs with this passion on Twitter, creating podcasts or building things or whatever. So um, yeah, to your point, I think it's important to have something that you can sort of control. Looking back over your ten plus years uh, of creating the site and and the the email newsletter, um, are there certain pieces that you've written or certain um, topics that you've covered that, in retrospect, you still still stand out for you that you feel um, either the most proud of or you just thought that was a real big moment? Yeah, I think it was in two thousand nine. I wrote a post that suggested that participating in social media was a moral obligation for physicians. I, I think. At the time, it was completely out of left field because everyone's like, how, how can you have to do this? And um, I, I framed it in the context of vaccine advocacy when there were very few physicians doing it online. And um, so that, that really shook things up a lot in terms of the way we see it, not just as some accessory thing, but as something we have to do. Um, fast forward to 2021, I think uh, the, the public space is really changing in terms of what docs are doing and um, 
yeah, I have, I might even reconsider that as, uh, as, as advice, but that was one that really kind of, uh, was, was foundational, I think, in terms of creating conversation and changing the way people see things. For sure. And there's stir up controversy or at least stirred up a, a big conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, this may be a little bit of a tangent, but obviously we've talked a little about uh, the writing you do and technology. Um, are there any processes or tech that you use um, for your process and being productive with your blog and other other things? Yeah. Um, so I sort of uh, use a uh, I use a program for for collecting information. I use a uh, a program called Feedly, okay. and so I have a few hundred news sources that I aggregate, and that's that's where I read and get stories for my newsletter, which is a curation newsletter. Um, I do a lot of my writing on um, on a application called Ulysses, and it's on my phone, and so I do a lot of uh, uh, capturing of ideas there, and I'll write while I'm waiting to do endoscopy and things like that. And so, yeah, technology has been really important in terms of improving my access to capturing ideas. To me, capture is really, really important because there are so many things that fly by me every day. And this goes for scientists and everyone. that You see something, you have to capture it when you see it, otherwise it'll just disappear. So capture is important. Right. And, and it's, it's interesting, not that we're necessarily, uh, or that you're necessarily recommending this to, to everybody, you know, writing that next publication for JAMA on your phone, but um, it, I think it is an interesting uh, note that in those five, ten minutes while you're waiting for your next case in endoscopy, you can still tap out a paragraph or two on something or some uh, an outline for, for a piece that you're going to write later. You can actually be effective in a relatively short period of time with the device that's with you. It doesn't need to be sitting at a desk with you right. know, three hours of protected time. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, so these, these tools can really, uh, it really can empower us and uh, we have to be careful where we put our attention sometimes, but uh, but that can really work. For sure. Um, so looking back on your career so far, what do you think has been the most valuable advice that you received? And uh, what advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, it might be the advice I would have given myself uh, 25 years ago, which is uh, you got to kind of find a way that's consistent with the things that you're really passionate about. Um, when I was a trainee, uh, our choice was one of two things, clinical research or bench research. And um, I didn't quite fit into either of those two things and so wound up in private practice and got bored and wound up writing books. And um, it's always been a journey to find the things that I'm really passionate about. And so the, for, young, for young folks, it would be to sort of not to buck, buck the system, but to find the thing you're interested in and make it fit within the system. Um, right now, things are so much better for trainees. There's 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 quality research. There's there's technology. There's education's a real thing now, and uh, master education in clinical medicine. And so, there are, there are ways that you can apply your passions that don't force you into a uh, square peg that uh, doesn't work for you. So, that would probably be the biggest advice I would give people is really stick stick to to what you want to you know do when you get up in the morning. Great. That's really good advice. And uh, before we wrap it up, any final words for our listeners? 
No, thanks for having me. This has really been a, a great conversation. Um, you guys do uh, so well with what makes these things successful, which is having a conversation and listening and doing feedback. And I do do the, the public position workshop at institutions. And so any, anyone that's interested can can reach out to me on the site. And the newsletter is uh, one of the tabs on the site, 33charts.com. Feel free to go there and keep up with me. Absolutely. Highly recommended. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. So that was a really great conversation uh, with with Dr. V. Uh, so glad that we were able to to have that conversation and to share it with our listeners. Um, I really, um, I just think, you know, I, I'm going to encourage everyone to to go online. We're gonna we're gonna share the link to the public physician ebook on uh, in the show notes. Everyone should go uh, check it out because I, I think the the biggest takeaway point is whether you want to have a public presence online or or you don't you will have one and it's better to get out in and really um, own that as to the extent that you can and make sure that it's reflective that uh, that sort of public profile is reflective of what you want that uh, profile to look like yeah I feel like it's something that uh, you know none of us got instruction on when we were in medical school uh, maybe they are now but not you know, back in the day. And, uh, but it's such a critical part of being a physician now, you know, having, you know, making sure that you're aware of what people are seeing and finding when they're searching for you. So um, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Bowel Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast. So as we mentioned at the top, we will be asking for questions and feedback. We'll also be posting the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. Definitely. And if you liked these episodes, if you like the, the program, uh, please uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people to find our podcast. Tell a friend, tell a new trainee, tell uh, anybody about a podcast that really helps, uh, like I said, other people to, to find the show. Um, if you want to support programs like this, uh, obviously we, we don't get any, uh, we don't get paid for, for doing this. We do this just because we love it. Um, but if you want to support, uh, NASPGAN in their efforts to, uh, provide programs, educational and research programs, you can donate to the NASPGAN foundation and you can get there on the NASPGAN website at www.naspghan.org. Um, and, uh, and any money that you donate to the foundation is put to very good use. All right. Until next time, everybody. Till next time. Bye.